Future Now, Future Next, in association with ESB. Be part of a brighter future with ESB. Welcome to RTE's Future Now, Future Next, in association with ESB. I'm Andy O'Donoghue. In this series, we explore how technology is changing how we live now and how it will revolutionise our future world. We need energy to make things work. We need it to heat our homes, to light up our lives and to power our journeys. However, energy choices have an impact on our lives and on our planet. With national and global targets for decarbonisation and renewables use, there is now a global conversation underway about energy and how we power our planet. So, where will it come from? How will it be produced? In Ireland, will all the focus be on wind and solar? But what about hydrogen and biomass, or even the contentious topic of nuclear? And what can we learn from those countries who have already travelled a more sustainable route to energy production? In this episode, we meet Brian O'Gallacore, Professor of Energy Engineering at UCC, and we discuss energy requirements and what renewable is right for Ireland. Then, Claire Duffy, Network Development and Electrification Manager at ESB Networks, describes the network of the future and she explains what the active energy citizen is. Finally, Lawrence Jones, Vice President of International Programs at the Edison Electric Institute, describes what elements of society we need to rethink to make a more sustainable future a reality. But first, I'm delighted to be joined by Mary Donnelly, Chair of the Climate Change Advisory Council. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Andy, and it's my pleasure to be here today. Mary, first of all, um, can you tell me about the work of the Climate Change Advisory Council? I, I think the first thing to say about the Climate Change Advisory Council is that it has been in existence for five years uh, and has established itself. But we are now facing into our second five-year cycle and the challenge is incrementally higher because of the climate bill that the government has launched and is currently being discussed by the Houses of the Oireachtas. And in it, Ireland is setting itself a very ambitious target of reducing our emissions by 51% between now and 2030. Uh, this is going to be a, a real challenge, but of course, it's also fair to say that uh, we have really to catch up a little bit on lost time over the last decade or so. So that gives us a particularly steep mountain to climb, but I'm very confident that we can do it. And the process, the, the, the mechanism, shall we say, that we're putting together as part of all of this is that uh, once the bill is actually adopted by uh, the Oireachtas, the Climate Change Advisory Council will then produce two five-year carbon budgets for the period 2021 to 2025 and then a second period 26 to 30 and a provisional budget for 31 to 35 and the budget will basically say this is how much Ireland can emit in the five-year period so it'll cover five years it's not every year it's a you know this is our limit and once we've reached our limit that's it when you talk about say 
sectoral budgets. Does that mean then that within, um, say, the broad landscape of our of our lives, that individual sectors will have to make different changes, um, and there will be more, I suppose, more pressure on some sectors than other. Yes, the sectoral budgets. Uh, I mean, this will be an issue for the the climate action plan, and ultimately, it will be a decision of government as to which sector does most or less, as the case may be. So we have an overall target of 51%. And I suppose if, if life was in a straight line, you'd simply say that all sectors would reduce by 51%. I think, though, we have to be pragmatic and realistic. It is perhaps achievable in some sectors mm. by 2030, but not by 2025. Mm. Whereas in other sectors, perhaps we can front end the reduction to the first budget cycle, but maybe a little bit less at the end. So part of the the sectoral budgets will be to appreciate where we are, what's available in terms of action, how quickly it can come into effect, and then what how it's you know how achievable is it, how feasible it is to actually implement it. So that's the process that will be ongoing. But it is true to say that all sectors will have to carry uh, the load. It may not be an equal load at an equal time. But ultimately, all sectors will be challenged. And from a citizen's point of view, what does a climate action plan mean for, for, the, for the average and the every citizen? What differences can we make and, and what difference will it make to our lives? So for me, climate change, which is, of course, a crisis that we need to take action in, sets out the policy actions and measures that the government will adopt and implement to make choice possible. And then the second part of the partnership is for people to make that choice. So, I mean, if I take a a fairly straightforward one, uh, electric mobility, electric uh, vehicles. So there it's important that government policy firstly supports the purchase of electric vehicles, and we have grants in place for that, but also then supports the rollout of charging points so that people don't have concern about range anxiety and other things. So government has a role to put those policies into place, but then people have a role and a choice about actually using those possibilities in terms of making their contribution to climate change. So that's the process as I see it going forward. And do you think generally, you you mentioned that we have some catching up to do. What about us as individuals? Have we been laggards generally compared to say, particularly, I suppose, our Northern European neighbours? Well, uh, suffice it to say that uh, we had a target to reduce our emissions by 20% by 2020. And we probably achieved a 1% reduction. So we are serious. Now, I I think we we have extended... Can you call it extenuating circumstances? Uh, you know, uh, first of all, the economy in Ireland since you know the noughties has been growing quite a bit, including construction. Then, of course, we had the financial crisis, which constrained the possibility of public expenditure on the policies that I just mentioned. Uh, since then, we've had expansion in our economy again and an expansion in our agricultural sector. And all of these have contributed to increasing the emissions. Uh, Our challenge going forward now is to reduce the emissions, to catch up on the last decade, shall we say, but to do so at a time when we hope our economy will continue to expand. So we will be seriously challenged Mm. by this. And it's it's not going to be easy, but I have every confidence Mm. that we will achieve it. If I could ask you about, uh, say, some of your work with the European Commission and uh, the clean energy for all Europeans package and and how that developed and the policy, I suppose, that was produced at the end of it. Can you explain that to me? 
So the clean energy package uh, was quite an innovation in a Brussels context, if I could say, because uh, for the first time uh, in the Commission, we took eight pieces of legislation at the same time and looked at how the eight pieces of legislation would impact on delivering uh, climate change and emission reduction and indeed alternative possibilities for people. So we, we took, for example, the greenhouse gas emission reductions for 2030, that package, the Lulu CF, which is the land use land change package. We took renewable energy uh, and all the things that went with it. We took the electricity market because a lot of changes had to take place there. And we took efficiency, both uh, energy efficiency generally and the energy efficiency of buildings directive. And as a package looked at those and how we could bring them all together at the same time to deliver the kind of uh, future direction for, shall we say, energy and energy use within the European Union. Uh, challenging, I have to say, to do all of that. You mm. can imagine the discussions that we had around the table. Uh, not everybody agreeing all the time, but I think it, it leads to a very uh, impressive set of work and it's a very coherent set of work because it's all happening at the same time. I, I, I think I read um, an EU statistic that buildings were um, accountable for 40% of energy consumption and 36% of uh, CO2 emissions. And so when you talk about sort of the clean energy, that clean energy policy and the building directive. So I suppose, is this how we arrived at things like the BER rating, which we now all have to have on our homes? Uh, yes, indeed. So one of the, the uh, almost subterranean pieces of legislation that was in that package is the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. And it's a, it's a directive. Um, so it was actually a revision of a directive. It had been there earlier. And the idea there is that at a European level, we look to what is the best technological and performance available anywhere in Europe. And we set that as our goal and our standard. And we gradually then move all of the provisions within the member states to achieve that. The first thing was to introduce some sort of a metric, because if you don't have a number, it's very hard to measure your progress. So the Burr rating was really a number which allowed us to identify the performance of buildings in terms of its uh, efficiency for heating, warmth, comfort in, in the house for the occupiers. And by having an, a metric then, then you can measure improvement in that metric. So first one was the metric that was the Burr rating that we all know and, and the way of implementing that that impacted on consumers was that when you either sold or rented, offered for rent uh, a building, you had to indicate the borough rating. And I think today it's probably fair to say that people understand that the better the borough rating, the cheaper it is to heat the house. And I think that was a very important support for consumers as part of all of this thing. But linked to that then, we also introduced what we call uh, NZEB, nearly zero energy buildings. And of course, that meant that the standards really did have to ratchet up over the period. So member states were given 10 years to achieve NZEB. And in Ireland now today, our building standards are at NZEB, which means that when we build new buildings, they should be certainly A-rating buildings. So the idea is that we won't have to retrofit these, we hope, 20 years from now, that you know what we build new will be good, it will be fit for purpose, it will deliver comfort and warmth to people who use the buildings uh, because it will meet that standard. So that's how the process works. You first of all have a metric and secondly then you have a certain standard to try and get to to produce a good result.
for us to participate today as individuals, what are the changes that we could make tomorrow? I suppose there's a number of things. Your biggest emission uh, in terms of uh, CO2 will come, of course, from your transport. So there, if you happen to be fortunate enough to be able to have an electric car, clearly that's the way to go. But there's a lot of things you can do in the interim period, you know, walking, cycling, public transport. These are all options. Question, do I need to make the journey? And if I need to make the journey, do I have to do it in a vehicle? It's really the kind of the routine questions maybe to ask in that sense. The second big area is your heating system. Uh, we have a, more than a million houses in Ireland using oil heating systems. It's quite a big pollutant. So looking for the alternatives for your heating system, I think is a, is a kind of a number one priority, especially if your boiler is more than 12 years old. Because it's bad when it's under 12, but when it's more than 12, it's not really very efficient, so it gets even worse. So it's to start looking at your lifestyle at the big areas, you know, as I say, transport and heating, and to say, okay, maybe I can't do it this year, but maybe I could plan to do it two years from now to change one or other of those. They're the actions for the individual. And as a nation, our next step? Our next step is, I hope, uh, the uh, adoption by the Oireachtas of the Climate Bill. We will come out with our carbon budget then. We will then have our climate action plan, which will have the sectoral actions. And you will see a lot of actions in the sectoral actions. You will see a lot of things happening uh, around you. But a lot of that burden will be taken both by government policy, but also by bigger companies and industrialists who will facilitate the choices that consumers will make. Mary Donnelly, Chair of the Climate Change Advisory Council. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed, Andy. You're listening to RTE's Future Now, Future Next. And in this episode, we're looking at energy. Next, I'm joined by Brian O'Gallacore, Professor of Energy Engineering at University College Cork and a Director of MARI. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Andy. Glad to be here. Brian, the first thing that I'd like to ask you is decarbonisation and the use of renewables an increasing number of options, but what's right for Ireland? We've got resources that are the envy of Europe. Uh, So we're in a great position for renewable energy, and we're only really starting the journey of of tapping into that. As you say, there are many options to choose from. And uh, not only are there many options, these different options have different purposes. So that's another important dimension to this. So when we consider our needs for electricity, for example, uh, top of the, the charts there for Ireland would be wind energy, onshore wind energy and offshore wind energy. Uh, the resources we have are phenomenal. Um, typically, you'd get as much electricity out of a turbine here as you would out of two or three in Germany onshore, for example. Uh, so we've got wind resources uh, that are the, the envy of Europe. Um, and that's great for, for generating electricity. We also, of course, have hydropower, which we've been using since the foundation of the state. Um, and that has been a very significant contributor. hundred percent of our electricity was from renewable sources back in the 1920s from hydropower. Um, but it represents a very small part of our electricity at the moment. Um, and, and there's limited um, kind of additional resources that we can harness there in terms of hydropower. We've made use of most of the, the potential in our rivers. Um, so that's on the electricity side. There's also solar energy, which also generates uh, electricity. And our resources there aren't as good as they would be in, say, Southern Europe. Um, but 
what we are seeing is an increasing amount of uh, solar energy usage in homes. So new houses that are being built uh, would use solar energy to provide some of their electricity needs. When it comes to heating and transport, then we've got different uh, options, different opportunities. Um, electricity represents just 20% of our energy use. So it's a relatively small part of our energy use. Transport and heat represent about 40% each. And um, they're mostly provided by the direct burning of fuels in engines or in boilers. And um, if we look at how to change the fuels we burn, then we're talking about biofuels. Um, we, we do have um, biodiesel and ethanol blended in currently with our diesel and petrol that we use for, for, for transportation, for example. Uh, but there's also potential for biogas, so generating uh, gas, a, ga a gaseous fuel um, from waste products, from grass, from crops, uh, and feeding that into our gas network. Uh, and there's also the potential for hydrogen uh, as well. So um, when you look at the decarbonisation challenge, um, of course, first on the list is energy efficiency. But when, when we reduce the energy wastage and we look to supply the remaining energy requirements that we have, um, electricity, we, we've been very successful in decarbonizing electricity. So 43% of our electricity now comes from wind, for example. And so if we take the emissions out of electricity and then use that electricity for more transportation and for more heating, so true electric vehicles and true heat pumps, that's one of the key planks of our strategy uh, going forward. In relation to the, say the capital cost involved here, you mentioned hydro, which uh, substantial capital cost to hydro uh, power. Um, but from a uh, from a micro generation or even, you know, community based uh, generation projects, is it likely to be wind? And as you mentioned, we use so much of it um, simply cost being part of the equation, that that's the route that we should go on, given that there are targets to be met and soon. Yeah, th there's a number of dimensions. Uh, cost is a very important one. And, and one of the things we've seen, seen over the last 20 years is significant innovation, which has brought down the costs of wind and solar energy in particular. Uh, another dimension that's related to cost is scale. So if we consider uh, solar energy, it's, it's much easier to scale that down than wind energy. And what I mean by that is if you put a solar panel on your roof uh, or if you have a solar farm, um, the difference in terms of investment, say per kilowatt installed, uh, that difference would be much lower than the difference between um, having a large scale wind farm and having a wind turbine outside your house or on your on your roof. So effectively, when we look at micro generation, solar energy is a lot more attractive financially. Um, and this is because when you've got the sun beating down on the earth, it, it, it just beats down on the earth. When you've got the wind blowing, you really need to get up as high as you can to really tap into that wind energy potential. And that's why scaling up uh, in terms of wind is very important. So I would say, now this doesn't mean that you can't have sort of community scale wind farms, but you would be looking at the larger turbines and, and maybe you could have a co-op model or you could have a, a, a school or a, an industrial estate investing in a wind turbine. And we've seen this, for example, say down in Ring of Skiddy with the pharmaceutical plants down there. So there's, there's four individual wind turbines 
that are feeding the electricity needs uh, of three individual factories. Uh, and that's the kind of way you can tap into to wind. Whereas with, with housing, for example, new houses uh, that are being built have solar panels on their roof, um, generating electricity and using the sun to do so. So, so there are differences between wind and solar in terms of both cost uh, and the scale, uh, but also, of course, in terms of resource, because um, we've, we've wind resources that are the envy of Europe. But obviously, Southern Europe has better solar resources. Microgeneration, as we mentioned it, is a topic that, you know, throughout this series, we've we, we, we've talked about it a few times. And are you encouraged when you see people setting about those microgeneration um projects be it solar at home companies like tesla with their roof tiles you must be encouraged by the public awareness that this is a really important time to be looking at this totally what what, what micro generation provides is a, a, a possibility for citizens to engage directly in the energy transition now citizens can engage in a number of ways the first port of call should be to to retrofit their home and maximize the energy efficiency but to be able to to meet your own energy needs uh, in your home is attractive to some people so providing that opportunity is important and then as communities come together you, you can have uh, other options so collective either investment in um, in wind or solar projects uh, or in bioenergy projects so the 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 scaling of the investment and the uh, finding the appropriate solution for citizens whether they want to do it individually or collectively is an important part and we're only scratching the surface with that i mean we've, we've a fascinating project now on the on the dingle peninsula in collaboration with esb networks with the dingle hub and with northeast west Kerry development and there for example we're trialing these new technologies uh, within homes, within businesses and within farms. So it gives people the experience of using these two new technologies. And also then they can talk to their neighbours, their friends. It reduces the mysticism associated with the, um, or the mystery associated with these technologies and gives people an opportunity to um, become familiar with these uh, technologies directly. We often hear um, Sweden and Norway particularly mentioned in relation to initiatives around um, not only renewables but sustainability generally. Why are the Scandinavians, why have they done so well, Brian? That's a, uh, a thesis all in itself. There's, there's, there's many, many facets to that. Um, the, the, certainly environmental consciousness uh, has been there for a long time. Um, the resources as well like in Sweden they've been traditionally using biomass for for many many years because of the amount of wood and forestry they have at their disposal so so some of it is being a, a natural uh, making use of the resources they have available uh, and some of it has been targeted uh, policy focused um, where you've got um, political leadership coupled with kind of a, a positive industry response and engagement and, and societal buy-in. And as you say, Norway, for example, is leading the way in terms of electric vehicles. Uh, Sweden is leading the way in terms of uh, things like renewable diesel and more on the bioenergy side. But both fascinating examples of, of um of essentially sustainability uh, leadership in action. The communication around um, 
energy generation, say in regards to nuclear power, has had a, uh, that's had a troubled past over the last uh, uh, few decades. And yet, in the last week alone, I've I've read and listened to two people talking about the potential for nuclear power generation and the use of small modular reactors um, might be ideal for Ireland. Do you think that's a valid proposition at this point? If you look at the scale of the challenge that we're facing uh, in terms of getting to uh, zero emissions by 2050 and, and halving our emissions by 2030, uh, I, I think everything should be put on the table for discussion. Um, and at the moment, certain things are on the table, certain things are off the table, and nuclear is certainly one that's off the table. Um, I think if we if we put it on the table and tease it out, um, it, it sometimes it's been promoted as a a, um, a silver bullet. Sometimes it's been uh, discussed in in a purely negative way, mm. and we, we we don't really move on in our discussion when it's when it's like that. If you look at the the traditional nuclear plants that have been built are large scale, and, and the scale do, do not lend themselves. Uh, to the power system size that we have in Ireland. As you say, there's a lot of promise in terms of the small modular reactors. Um, we've been trying to get costs of those and they're still at the development stage. So it's so that's one dimension uh, to it in terms of the timing of when they could be deployed, if you like. Uh, but the bigger issue, I think, would be the societal discussion around mm -hmm. that. So that would be a, a, a difficult discussion mm -hmm. and, uh, and contentious. Um, and um, but what happens when we don't have things on the table, if, if we take things off the table uh, too soon, it, it reduces our chances of actually meeting the emissions reductions uh, because we're ruling out certain things. And the focus we've had in the past has been uh, on renewable electricity. And we've done very well there. You know, we're, we're top of the class. We're world leading in terms of integrating variable renewable electricity onto a, a, a synchronous power system, but we've neglected renewable heat totally. So we've, while we're world leading on, on, um, on wind energy, uh, we've, we're failing to meet our emissions reduction targets and our renewable energy targets because they cover the whole of, of emissions and the whole of renewable energy. And it's in the other aspects uh, that we've, we've failed. And partly this is because things like uh, biofuels or biogas in, in, the, in the renewable energy space, they're discussed differently to, to renewable electricity. Um, and it's, it's a similar issue with regard to, I mean, certainly if you look globally at um, the um, most of the emission reduction scenarios uh, globally would show uh, an increased um, opportunity and requirement for nuclear energy. Um, when it comes to regional specific, it does vary. And uh, and so in, in an Irish context, I think it would be useful to have a discussion, but it's only one part. Uh, and, and this is part of the challenge. It, it becomes then a, a, a focal point for discussion. And we can forget about things like retrofitting, the things that we should be doing uh, in parallel. So I, I think it's useful to have a discussion, but not to park everything else while we're having that discussion. From, you know, the autumn on as life will probably get back to normal we might have that initial sort of you know i suspect a lot of people taking to the air and taking to the road but let's say that settles down our next big collective move what does that need to be 
there, there will be a, a, a need to get economic activity back up and running. And what's interesting is the, the potential for a kind of green stimulus um, to, to, to enable that. So investment that allows us to do things, but to do things differently. And uh, if you look at the EU Green Deal, for example, there's huge opportunities for Ireland to, to tap its into some of the resources there to be able to uh, build forward better. So plan for, uh, as you say, rather than going back to, to, to business as usual, to, to do things differently uh, and to make the investments because uh, money will be available for investment. Um, and you've got interesting things, opportunities in the Irish um, context that need investment, such as rolling out retrofitting of our homes, rolling out uh, electric vehicles, rolling out offshore wind, rolling out hydrogen, uh, rolling out uh, uh, biogas. You know, there's a whole plethora of things that, that need that investment. Uh, so aligning the, the, uh, the investment with uh, sustainability, I think, is a key opportunity uh, for the next 12 months and actually for the next 12 years, you know, um, and, and I think that's one of the, the ways in which we, we can choose to look at this in terms of moving forward. Brian O'Gallacor, Professor of Energy Engineering at UCC and Director of Mare, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Andy. You're listening to Future Now, Future Next in association with ESB. ESB, creating a brighter future for all. This is the Future Now, Future Next podcast on energy. Now, we heard Brian O'Gallacore discuss various forms of renewables there, but those sources of energy need to be integrated into the grids or networks that we use to access power. So, to discuss the network of the future, amongst other things, I'm joined by Claire Duffy, Development and Electrification Manager at ESB Networks. Claire, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much, Andy. Delighted to be here. Claire, the first thing I just wanted to ask you about is energy in the future and innovation. And from your perspective, how do we design the network of the future? Well, for us, I suppose the big, the latest, the current change um, and wave of innovation is happening um, down at what we call the active energy citizens down, where consumers and customers are actually interacting with the power system. So that's where we're seeing all of that innovation at the moment. And what we're seeing is that people are going to change how they um, use electricity and how they store electricity. And we, in terms of designing the future network, have to make sure that we can enable that. So our purpose has evolved as well from not just keeping the lights on, but now making sure that these active consumers can can play a different, a more active role in the system. And just explain to me what the active energy citizen is. Yeah, so we, um, in ESB Networks, we work off the definition, right, that an energy citizen is someone who understands that their behaviour has consequences for the electricity grid, right? Whereas an active energy citizen is someone who will take and alter their behaviour to have an impact on that network. And that's what we're going to see more of in the future. In regards to the work that you do, and, and I noticed the word electrification in your title, um, so presumably that means heat, transport and even things like microgeneration. Our network, right, it's, been, it's, it's evolved and developed over 90 years, right? And it was designed for a very different business model where you would have had large centralised generation. 
you know, connecting in at high voltage transmission right down through the network, down to consumers and businesses and homes, right? And that was a one-way system, so to speak, a one-way traffic. Now what we're going to start seeing is much more what we call distributed energy resources. So be that solar panels on people's roofs, be that electric vehicle chargers at the low voltage level, be that, um, you know, d installed um, wind farms on larger solar but again at the lower voltage levels then we're going to start to see i suppose um you know a, diff a different sort of uh, use of the system and suppose that's where we get involved in terms of electrification and in my role we're essentially having to repurpose and redesign the network that has evolved over 90 years and in doing that we need to make sure particularly at the low voltage level when you're connecting into homes and businesses that we can cater for for essence what's going to be almost this two-way traffic and also a significant increase of demand with um, electric vehicle chargers the e-car chargers and for example electrifying people's homes using heat pumps and we need to be able to make sure that we can cater for that increased demand in regards to the electrification of heat say and that's probably the first thing that most of us uh, um, people who live in a house will heat it and traditionally oil and gas so what's different about the electric heat pump and what difference does it make I mean, using the heat pump technology, the air, what they call the air source heat pump, that um, that doesn't, you're not generating the same carbon emissions as you would with fossil fuel. So I'm I'm originally West Donegal, right? So my family, my neighbours, you know, it's either it's either the peat or it's um, oil fueled by oil burners, right? So within Ireland, I think there's something like nearly seven hundred thousand oil fired home home burners in the country and we're looking to have to make that transition between now and 2030 if we want to meet the climate um the, you know the climate action plan for the country and meet those targets so you're going to have to look at trying to transition and persuade people to make that shift to electric um electrifying their heat rather than using fossil fuel because when you switch to electricity both for your heat or your transport it's actually when when you think that we're um you know we've more than um, halved the carbon emissions from electricity generation since 1990 and we're increasing the amount of renewables so that's a low carbon energy system so the electricity system so then if you replace your fossil fuel heat and your transport with low carbon electricity then it's the most kind of proven and sort of the most it seems to be the most um i suppose um you know valid at the minute you know track and route to your low carbon economy so that's that's where it's all coming from at the consumer end so the the people like me who might buy uh, and install a heat pump um what else can we do and i suppose really you know yes you mentioned solar panels and we've seen the roof tiles with the panels built in i think from tesla people like that um is micro generation is it is it a promise that is really going to keep itself well, it's coming. So, I mean, we're expecting there's going to be an announcement later on, I think towards the end of the summer, where the government are going to be providing information um, around what kind of feed-in tariffs, for example, can be used with the solar panels. But from our perspective, right, on the, and, and trying to prepare and design this network to be able to cater for these future uses, what we're seeing is, yes, we're preparing for the, 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 the heat and the, and the microgeneration, but, but where we think there might be a, a quicker uptake is actually on the transport, on the electric cars, particularly in some of the more urban areas, because in order to make a heat pump 
um, you know, viable within your house. It does, in some instances, require a pretty significant retrofit of your home insulation. So, so you're looking at potentially an average cost, perhaps, of €35,000 um, upwards, you know. And there are grants and there are initiatives going on and the likes of the SAI and others are, you know, there's going to be a big drive to encourage people and to try and provide financing that's lower cost and all of that. But in terms of people replacing their cars, you know, we think that's probably where we're going to start to see the uptake, um, a larger uptake first. But I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty around the uptake of, of, of this technology. We just have to try and get it right so that, and in effect, we've got the Goldilocks solution. We don't overinvest too much, but that we have the system ready for um, for this new uptake. You mentioned retrofit a couple of times. In regards to how we build houses, how we plan cities, that has to happen in parallel to designing um, our, our electricity network of the future. Yes, well, last year we and we changed our um, low voltage design standards, which for new buildings and new homes, um, and so that meant that we're future proofing, right? What's coming in um, in terms of new build? But the big challenge, as you see, is is the existing housing stock, this existing buildings, and we're working actually with a, with another very interesting innovation project in the Georgian part of Limerick City. So Limerick City and County Council have got an EU part funded project where they're looking to say, okay, how can you take us? you know, these old sort of buildings, how do you make them more energy efficient? How do you, in a sense, create the, 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 the aim of the project is to create what they call a positive energy district. So they're actually generating more electricity than they're using. And, they're, and as I say, working with these old buildings, it's, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of challenges there. So there's, there's a number of initiatives going on around how, how we do that. And for us, I suppose, you know, there's a lot of it is in the building, the building technology side as well. So there are lots of different partners on that project. Say a few years ago, half time in the All Ireland and huge surge on the ESB for the kettles being boiled. Um, but life has changed and, uh, you know, time shifting of entertainment. And we know the last 12 months have been difficult in many other respects. Um, do you think we live in a world now that um, that it's easier for us to uh, to live the active energy citizen life? Yes, I do. And I think, you know, we're starting to see more technology becoming available for people to make to make those make it easier to make those choices. And I, without having to compromise the kind of quality of service, like, you know, people want to be able to do the things, as you say, do their cooking, watch the TV, do, you know, stream whatever they want. And they don't want to have that sort of time limited. But when you see the new technologies that are there, um, people are going to make the choices. And I, I draw you to a project that we have in, in Dingle, which we call the StoreNet project, which we worked with some partners. So we had solar panels on the roof. We had a home battery system. And, and what was happening is when people were saying, OK, at certain times they would they would charge their battery if they had excess and they weren't using it all, maybe rather than spilling it to the network. Right. But then that means that that types of technology will be able to help us manage the peaks you know, when we're building, when we've got the network. So in those situations, you could almost see that if it was peak and there was a, perhaps a price signal. So a consumer would say, ah, hang on now, this is peak time. I'm going to pay peak, peak electricity price. I'll use what I've, I've already stored in my battery. You know, so there's going to be lots of really exciting opportunities for people to be able to make those kinds of choices. And the technologies, as I say, the wave of innovation is all at that consumer interface with the electricity system. Claire Duffy, Network Development and Electrification Manager at ESB Networks. Thanks so much. Thanks very much, Andy.
Finally in this episode, I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Lawrence E. Jones, Vice President International Programs at the Edison Electric Institute. Welcome to Future Now, Future Next, Lawrence. Thanks for having me, Andrew. What do you think we've learned as a, uh, I suppose, as a global community over the last 12 months? Have we learned that there's a benefit here about not only decarbonisation, but also sort of depopulating uh, our cities uh, during the day? I've been reading what's happening in Ireland, where you're trying to sort of uh, use the uh, almost like a de-urbanization strategy where you want more people to live in rural communities. I think one of the things the pandemic has shown us, and I think we've learned, is that we have to rethink um, a lot of the aspects that made society work. For example, transportation. Um, if you're working in a city, I live right outside of Washington, D.C., and we have people who have to commute to Washington, D.C., uh, for an hour, an hour and a half. Uh, the pandemic has shown us that that is really not necessary. Uh, I think the real challenge uh, for us as a global community is lifestyles have to change, but we have to also condition the citizens for the change that is upon us. I think the other aspect that the pandemic has taught us is that, you know, where we work uh, does not necessarily have to be a physical constraint. Uh, we have been able to do a lot remotely using platforms like Zoom and other things. But I think um, more, more interestingly from the standpoint of decarbonization, I think the, the, the pandemic has shown us that uh, our lifestyle has to change. And what has concerned me is oftentimes the conversation around uh, changing, whether it relates to changing for doing a better job of managing climate or other kinds of ex ex external activities. I think the real challenge is how do we change our behavior? Uh, there was a report that came out in the UK, uh, I think sometime uh, last month, that said for the UK to meet its uh, uh, climate uh, objective, so to speak, to get to net zero, it will require significant change in the lifestyle of, of uh, UK citizens. And so I think the key aspect of the decarbonization uh, uh, measures being explored or being put in place is how do we change the behavior of citizens in the world? That's where I think the real challenge sits. In regards to changing behavior, and I know you lived in Scandinavia for quite a while, for a decade or so, I think, and they seem to be doing particularly well. I know Norway particularly, but Sweden also. Um, so when you look at areas of the world like that, Lawrence, is it down to policy or is it down to collective social consciousness that it sort of empowers that, that rapid improvement or adoption? I think it's a bit of both. I think it's one uh, within the culture. There's a value system that has to sort of drive where the politics would like to go. Uh, because politicians or politics doesn't function in the vacuum, right? It, it functions as part of a social construct. And so I think you mentioned Scandinavia would even bring New Zealand to the table as well and other parts of the world. So I think it's a, it's a little bit of addressing not just the cultural and the behavioral dynamics that makes a, a country, but also the politics. I think you need both. When you look at countries who've made really, you know, I suppose great progress or good progress who are doing well, in regards to infrastructure and sort of this challenge that we have, I mean, a lot of countries, I mean, we look at, say, the, the Texas outage um, last year, um, perhaps blamed on exposed infrastructure. Um, so apart from decarbonisation, there does appear to be a lot of work to be done on upgrading infrastructure. That's a, that's a valid point you're making, because 
at the end of the day, whether it's off-grid or on-grid, and I always say we need a hybrid approach to dealing with the climate when it comes to infrastructure. There are those who will say we need to uh, not build the large grids. Well, un unfortunately, because of the urban centers we have, you still need the large grid. So you need microgrids, you need mini grids, but you also need a macro grid, right? And the challenge comes when it has to do with the macro grid because everyone thinks, why do you need to build these long transmission lines? Well, you need to get vast amounts of power. For example, in the, in the UK, uh, Ireland, you have offshore wind, right? You have to get those the, that, that wind energy to the load centers, whether it be it's in Dublin or Glasgow, wherever you are, right? So I think fundamentally building the infrastructure is critical. What has slowed it down in many parts of the world is the permitting process. It's also the siting because people want it, but they don't want to see it, right? And so so I think that's where the challenge lies. In regards to, say, infrastructure in, in say, countries like Africa, uh, who are, you know, we're seeing, I know um, your work with the Edison uh, Institute is interesting there, and perhaps even your talk uh, about that. So, so within the Edison Electric Institute, we obviously uh, a strong focus of our domestic program are the investor-owned utilities based in North in the U.S. But then we have the international program that I run, and that program has about sixty-five to seventy international members that operate in ninety countries. We have really prioritized Africa as one of those strategic regions because we see. The, the, the issue around electricity access in Africa has been extremely critical for how we move forward. The other thing that's important is if you think of Africa and you think long-term, we are now talking about 2050. Well, by the year 2050, the population in Africa will be beyond a billion people. And without access to electricity, without access to the, the very uh, necessary energy sources for uh, providing a, a better life, you will have a challenge, right? You have all kinds of issues. So within the EI, we have started to work with utilities across Africa to try and share the lessons we're learning from companies, say like ESB in Ireland. Uh, we also have companies in Canada, companies in the US, sharing at the executive level, not necessarily at the technical level because we've said it before and I repeat it, technology is not the issue to lack of access in the world. There's enough technology out there. Part of the challenge is getting the policy right and getting the operational expertise right. With that, you can be able to address a lot of the issues when it comes to energy access around the world. What technology or what methods are you most when you look at uh, when you look at a continent like Africa, as um, <clears throat> in comparison or as a contrast to say North America, what is the difference in um, the process, I suppose, or the technology that you see? that will make a difference or be most beneficial in the electrification uh, endeavors there? There is not one single technology, uh, Andy, and the reason is because the African population is dispersed through both rural and urban. And so in terms of generation supply, obviously there's vast amounts of renewable energy in Africa. Mm -hmm. How do you harness it? Well, if you want to scale it up, you can scale it up by just putting rooftop solar. You need to scale up by building large plants. And those large plants many times will require infrastructure. The challenge we face is that because of urbanization, many African cities were not developed to, to consume the large population they have today, right? I mean, I take a country like, um, say, Liberia or South Africa or even Nigeria, where you now have cities that are sprawling with population densities that beyond the expectations when they were designed 40, 50 years ago. 
not only the electricity infrastructure isn't there, even the road infrastructure isn't there, right? So the amount of work you will have to do to modernize the access to electricity or the, the infrastructure is monumental. Mm. But in terms of fundamental technology, I think you need to look at all, all of the above. I think you need to look at, uh, you know, solar, wind, natural gas in the cases where it's, it's needed there. Um, and you have to also explore, in some cases, uh, looking at uh, geothermal, uh, hydro is still a part of the equation. Uh, and so I think one has to really sort of take a diversified view of the world when it comes to electricity and say regionalization is important. Every region has a different set of resources, right? Uh, and so you have to say, well, what do they have access to in West Africa? What do they have access to in East Africa? The same with North America, the same with Europe. And I think we, we should all want to clean the planet and we must work to doing that. But we cannot assume that there's a silver bullet. There's not just one thing. Even if you look at renewables, in some places, if you're going to go where you have high penetration of wind or solar, you still may need backup. Well, what is going to provide the backup generation? Well, some say, well, we don't want do nuclear. But if you don't have nuclear, what else do you bring? Natural gas. Well, some say they don't want natural gas. So I think I think the challenge we face as a globe is that there are a lot of either or propositions being put on the table, and I would prefer uh, an and as opposed to an either or. Right. So so I think that's the approach we have to take. Dr. Lawrence Jones, Vice President for International Programs at the Edison Electric Institute. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Two hundred years of industrialization have created a heavy burden of demand for energy, and that really doesn't look like abating. But our domestic lives, our homes, are also demanding, and our love of gadgets, of big screen TVs, and our love of travel all have a cost that could challenge our collective ambition for decarbonisation. We've learned about the progress in Norway in regards to electric vehicles, the success in Sweden of biomass renewables, and the decarbonisation urbanization challenge ahead for the entire continent of Africa. But we've also heard how Ireland is progressing with renewable generation, particularly wind, the potential benefits of retrofitting, even microgeneration, and what a green stimulus might mean for us. Well, that's it for this episode of Future Now, Future Next. Thanks for joining us. Remember, you can listen back to the whole series of Future Now, Future Next on the RTE radio player or wherever you get your podcasts. Join us next time for Future Now, Future Next in association with ESB. ESB, leading the way to a brighter future for all.